Welcome to STEM Unplugged, a monthly podcast designed to help you learn about STEM initiatives and to help advance STEM awareness. Now here's your host, Kelly Green. Good evening, and thanks for getting connected for this episode of STEM Unplugged. I am your host, Kelly Green, the Chief Operating Officer of SciTech Institute, a collaborative nonprofit organization making STEM connections in Arizona and beyond. My team member, Claire Conway, is also joining us tonight. She is working to build the Arizona STEM ecosystem one hub at a time. Tonight, we're excited to have a variety of guests on to celebrate water in Arizona. Claire, would you take a moment to introduce each of our guests? Yeah, absolutely. So tonight we've got Jayashri Sakar and Soman Zaha from the co-owners at Achievers Legacy. And we're also joined by Paul Gurley, who is an executive director at the University of Arizona, Yuma Center for Desert Yuma Center of Excellence for Desert Agriculture. It's going to be a great discussion tonight. Absolutely. Thank you all for joining us tonight on STEM Unplugged. Let's get right into our discussion about the importance of your work in our beautiful but very dry state of Arizona. Let's start with Jay. Could you tell us a little bit about your career path and what got you interested in chemical engineering and water purification? Thank you. Thank you for having us here, Kelly. This is a very good question. I had never planned to be a chemical engineer. I just wanted, I I knew I wanted to be an engineer, Ah. but chemical engineering was... um, something I stumbled upon when I was getting into admissions because I got a scholarship. I had no idea what doors it would open for me. That's incredible. I was good in chemistry. So I thought, oh, chemical engineering, chemistry, I think I, I can do it. <laughs> right? As a, as a, I mean, uh, just out of high school, you don't really know a whole lot about what Absolutely. When I started learning, I realized chemical engineers impact the environment. Mm-hmm. And I was sold. That's awesome. What a great story. Yeah, what an inspiring story. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Sophie, can you tell us a little about the diversity of fields water can impact and a little about your background too? Actually, uh, can I add to Jay's sure. background for a yeah. moment? Yeah, I think she forgot to mention that she has a PhD in chemical engineering and she did a bunch of research in nanotechnology. Oh, that's incredible. And uh, <laughs> She's think, a humble brag over here. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to take the time to do that. Congratulations, and, uh, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. It has been a beautiful experience. Nanotechnology, as I said, it opened up a lot of fields for me. And air and water are two very, very important elements for overall health and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a no-brainer to, especially after COVID, a no-brainer to support a cause that uh, impacts lives all around the world. Incredible. So my name is Soman Saha. I have, uh, my background is also in chemical engineering. I have a PhD from Wisconsin. Loved the school. Can't say I always uh, studied a lot, but I somehow did my PhD. So that was good. And then uh, <laughs> and uh, after that, I worked in management consulting, uh, primarily between business and technology. We essentially got serious about our business and entrepreneurship journey about two years back when COVID hit. And to answer your question, Claire, in terms of water, water is like the source. First of all, we'll start with the fun stuff. Anything we want to drink. We need water, right? All the beverages, <laughs> right. soft, hard, whatever you want to say, right? <laughs> so any kind of water sports we want to do. Mm-hmm. And think of a world where we don't have uh, beaches around. Mm. And water is important for plants, greenery, yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, life in general, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, in terms of Arizona, I mean, water is a big topic nowadays, especially with everything that is happening. I'm sure Paul will talk about all of that. 
especially with the Colorado River, what is happening and so on and so forth, the increasing population. Right. So, yeah. So agriculture, uh, water, all, all kinds of industries use water for different things like manufacturing industries and so on and so forth. Yeah. So the way we see it, water is life of whatever we call life as. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, water and air both go together. You need yes, them both. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Paul would agree being from the ag perspective, how efficient or productive is uh, desert agriculture, Paul? I wanted to sh- you to share a little bit about the Arizona ag water story and share a little bit about your journey yourself. Sure. My journey is not unlike Jay's journey. <laughs> I, um, I grew up on a farm. I was pretty good at math and uh, decided I wanted to do something with math, but I didn't want to teach. And the only thing besides teaching that I could think of for math was to be an engineer. So <laughs> uh, not really knowing what an engineer was, I, I went to school and became an electrical engineer, computer scientist, and did that for a while. Uh, actually worked with the, the guy who writes the Dilbert comic strip, if that gives you some idea of the oh, that's uh, so cool. the the environment I was in. So I lasted about five years doing that, and I and I headed back to agriculture. Um, and I've been in production agriculture. I've been in sort of public policy of agriculture, and now I'm more in in ag research. So yeah, so that's sort of the technical side. I mean, I could talk for hours about water, but I guess I did want to get across the point that in in Arizona. The majority of the water is used for agriculture, and so it's definitely an important uh, component. People often ask, "What's what's the story about ag water?" and and I always say, "There's not one story about ag water in Arizona. You have so many different uh, sort of sources of water and uses of water." And just to break it down, for example, uh, where I'm at in Yuma County, we divert all of our water from the Colorado River, and and utilize that water. Uh, and La Paz County above us does that too. And then you have uh, three counties that are connected to the Central Arizona Project, Maricopa, Pinal, and Pima County. That is Colorado River water, but it's you know all managed and, mm-hmm. and flowing through the Central Arizona Project, which has different water rights and different management. Um, and then you've got counties like Graham and Greenlee and other places that are on, they, they have their own rivers, the Gila River or others, uh, but often under decrees with Indian water rights and, and things like that. So they have their own set of rules. Um, and then you have counties like Mojave and Cochise that that depend completely on groundwater. And, and that, again, has its own set of rules and any issues and and all of that. So um, so that's kind of setting the stage on the water story in Arizona. You asked me, too, about efficiency. Do you want me to go into that a little bit? Sure. I, I think it's important to even think about, I mean, you went to school in Wisconsin. There's no shortage of water and snow. I'm from New York, right? So understanding that Arizona, when I came here, I didn't really understand all of the Central Arizona Project and, you know, the canal systems. And so it was very interesting to me from being from a very moisture-rich mm-hmm. environment, coming to the desert mm-hmm. and how do people survive, you know, with the hot air and lack of water. <laughs> so I, I think it's really interesting that you shared that perspective. But yeah, let's jump into the efficiency, you know, with agriculture being the number one use of water, how efficient are we in Arizona? Yeah. And again, it varies, it varies around the state, but um, uh, I think people's natural reactions sort of is, well, why are you growing food in the desert? That's kind of a waste of water. And uh, it turns out like in a place in Yuma, a place like Yuma, if I was going to take the Colorado River and consider it to be a big bathtub of water uh, and figure out where would I want to grow food, I'd actually want to do it here. Our, our First of all, our soils aren't uh, pure sand, like uh, people mm-hmm. might think of Arizona. 
because we're in the Colorado River Basin. So over the eons of time, Colorado River would flood and recede and flood and recede and, and, and leave its sediment behind. So we have, we have good soil. We have year-round growing conditions because this is the sunniest place on earth. Mm -hmm. um, and it almost never rains here. So why is that important? You, you always think, well, you want it to rain, but they actually, farmers don't want it to rain here because it allows them to control all the inputs to the crops mm -hmm. and you get exactly the water, the amount of water that the crop needs um, for the crop, for, for soil health, for different things, um, but you control how much and when, and that allows you to also control how fertilizers and, and other crop protection products are applied and used and, and not squandered, not leached beyond the root zone. Um, so it turns out to be a very reliable and very productive uh, environment, more so really than almost any place in the world. And, and uh, combine that with being able to grow year round and you have just some amazing productivity and, and again, quality. We, in some measures, we're in the top one-tenth of 1% 1 of all counties in the United States as far as ag production. And an example of the quality is companies like Barilla that you buy pasta from. Mm -hmm. um, they actually import wheat grown in Yuma uh, to make their pasta because the quality is it's quality and quantity are reliable and very high quality can mix with other wheat and bring the quality up. So, so yeah, so this, this is a heck of a place to do agriculture and it's very different than most other places in the state and in, even in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. That's that is fabulous. Almost like a system, almost like a predictable, it, predictable system of agriculture. Love it. That's a great way to look at it because it, it is, the more I learn about it, just things like they have rotation crops. So we grow vegetables. We reproduce 90% of um, the wintertime leafy greens mm. all of, for all of North America. But then they're, as those get harvested, we rotate into melons and cotton and um, wheat and Sudan grass. And you'd think, well, they're just growing something in the off season. But actually, there's very practical reasons they do that. Those crops can utilize any leftover fertilizers. They have deeper roots. So they'll go down and, and pull the fertilizers out of the, the ground. And, and they help with soil health. They help, you know, there's, there's a lot of thought and a lot of work has gone into every part of the system here. Mm -hmm. And it, and it does let the efficiencies get up. You know, a lot of times people think drip irrigation is the way that you have to, is the only way to get really high efficiency. Uh, but it turns out the systems they have here, they're very, they call them high flow, high turnout systems. So they're big canals, big turnout systems. The fields are leveled. Uh, laser leveled or GPS leveled every year. So they're, they're dead level. Uh, there's no runoff and the, the water just goes out there and, and covers it all equally very rapidly. And so it's the efficiency of that uh, rivals drip irrigation without all the expense and the plastic and everything else. So I could go on, but but yes, it is a system, and it, I think it's I finally find it fancy, system. fascinating. It's it so, I mean, I've driven by the fields, and you know, we learned about the gentry last year. The water, um, the agriculture out near Pima County, that the very large drip system mm -hmm. machine. I don't know exactly. I'm acting like I know exactly what it does, but the technology that goes into the ag here in Arizona is very impressive. And, you know, so talking about the laser level and the flat ground so that the water distributes evenly, there's a real science behind that, which is why, of course, we invited you to the conversation um, to talk about how efficient we really are as a state, especially in Yuma County with 
um, I don't know if everybody heard him say, but the leafy greens for all of North America. Is that what you said? That's incredible. So understanding that a desert state is providing for all other states is is pretty phenomenal in my and, opinion. And Canada. Um, yeah, it, it is pretty neat. Basically between Thanksgiving and Easter, if you have a salad, most of that most likely came from Yuma. That's so cool. That is fabulous. <laughs> that is Eye-opening. And as a as a resident of Arizona, such a proud thing to know. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think don't is dates pretty popular in Yuma too? Dates are popular here. There's about I think about five thousand acres of dates. And if you think about how many trees that is and <laughs> and all the trips up and down each tree to prune, thin, pollinate, harvest, all the different things they do, very labor intensive. Um, which is another thing Yuma has is being on the border. We have a, a workforce that comes across the border every day mm-hmm. uh, from Mexico for some of these crops that require, you know, hand harvesting, hand labor. Uh, but yeah, dates, the medjool dates are almost all produced uh, in the Yuma area. That's incredible. Well, and with those interesting insights, I really want to talk to all of you about, you know, how are you making a difference with your work in STEM, right? So you're talking about both having, you know, chemical engineering backgrounds, having traveled from different states, now being here in Arizona. But what what are some of the goals that you had once you fell in love with chemical engineering and how you perceive making changes as we go forward? What are some of your thoughts? That's a great question. From chemical engineering standpoint, I, I knew that if I'm edu- if I'm getting education in something, I wanted to apply in real world. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what. Even after my uh, PhD, I didn't know what was it that was my calling, so to speak. But my background was nanotechnology. So I developed, for environmental <laughs> reasons, I developed um, what is called catalytic converters. The little tin can that goes under your vehicle just yeah. before the tailpipe. That's called catalytic converter. And I developed materials. I produced, uh, manufactured materials that would go into these catalytic converters, reduce pollution, (laughs) improve quality of air. Yeah. Yeah. And also keep the cost low. So that was my contribution through my research as I was learning about research. And um, that's what my work was with Honda as well for a few years. Then I moved to Arizona, worked for another aftermarket company, a, a small startup where we would make aftermarket parts for catalytic converters. So air has always been in the background of my work. Right. Right now we are looking at um, solutions that we can provide, quality solutions, sustainable solutions, because sustainability is a big thing moving forward. If we want to preserve the earth for generations to come, sustainability has to come absolutely uh, as the foundation of what we do. So that is uh, our goal, to create sustainable um, solutions, provide sustainable solutions, back sustainable solutions, because we understand its importance. Mm. And we are very much invested in, in terms of Tempe, because this is where we are. Right. And we're very invested in making Tempe a sustainable community and contributing to that aspect. That's incredible. So talking about my journey is a bit different from Jay's because when I was in the second year of PhD, though, what I realized was I just did not want to do research in a lab. I wanted to go out and implement things so that if materials are developed, they can be brought to the public. You need an entire program to do that and so on and so forth. Okay. So um, that's where I went into management consulting. The reason I'm mentioning that is because a lot of times when we are in STEM, of course, 
if somebody loves engineering, then that is the field. But if you want to think about an engineering solution that has been made by somebody who loves engineering, but then somebody has to bring it to the market as well. Mm-hmm. Bring it to the masses, so masses, to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And this becomes very much important, especially in all the sustainable solutions, the renewable, everything that is happening with renewable energy and renewable, everything that is happening at this point in time. So I think we're in a very interesting and very exciting times Yes, where the face is about to change. Uh, we have seen electric cars come in. We have seen solar panels go up all the way. And uh, we are the, now putting electricity from solar power into the grid. Uh, that's that's a norm today. 20 years ago, that wasn't. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So essentially, the work that we do, we see ourselves as a big factor in terms of, and as a big contribu- contributing factor in terms of building a sustainable company. Yeah, and I think a- you mentioned too about manufacturing, right? This is a very specific location on the I-10 freeway here of, you know, numerous manufacturing companies and the role that the water plays in those manufacturing facilities is is very important. So how do we sustain the growth, the electric vehicles coming into the grid and, you know, all of the power companies being able to utilize not only the water, but, you know, the electric efficiently. So I think that's a great point. It is. It is. What about you, Paul? What are some differences you hope to make in your work? I'm I mean, you've been in Yuma County now for a while, so you're already making big strides, but any other future goals? Yeah, you know, I, I, for me, being coming from agriculture, but then becoming an engineer, um, putting those two together for ag tech, what we call ag tech, mm-hmm. um, is really my sweet spot. And I think it's also the solution to, you know, the future for ag to be become more and more efficient and more productive. Um, as it needs to do with with climate change and with uh, population increasing. So I'll give you an example. Our our largest project here, um, we've been doing it where I think we're in our sixth year now. Um, We're measuring crop water use of all the major crops and rotation crops here. That kind of data hadn't been done for like 50 years. So the varieties change, conditions change, growing systems change. So we're getting good data, and this is really high-tech stuff where these, these systems called eddy covariance systems are put out in the field, and they measure very precisely all the heat fluxes and energy balances and, and everything else to exactly measure what's the evapotranspiration of the crop. Um, but we're also looking at the, the impact of soil salinity. So salts build up in the soil. There's salts in the water. We're at the bottom end of the Colorado River that's been accumulating salts. and um, and then we're so hot and dry that when it evaporates, it leaves behind more salts. And there's a number of reasons that um, that we build up a lot of salt. And when you get too much, especially tender crops like like lettuce and spinach and things like that, won't well, you know you can't produce them. So so we built up this large database over these six years of, and this is working with U of A scientists and USDA scientists, and we measure this precisely in the crops, and you get this database of exactly what the crop needs, which is, you know, a component of what you need to do. But because of the salt buildup, you also need to add some additional water um, to the system that leaches the the high concentration of salts down below the root zone. And so the farmers are good at doing that. But the question is, you know, can we measure exactly what they need to do? And and with each crop, is is it adding salinity? Is it leaching salinity? Once you know that, you can better match your rotation crops and better quantify um, the water that you need to use. So using that large database, which can be used for a lot of different things, we are working with the U of A team to develop 
uh, a mobile app so that farmers will get recommendations uh, when they need the water, how much they need the water, and it'll track the salt balance in the soil so they know at some point they need to add this much water to you know to get the salts out of the root zone. So, and that ties into weather stations, you know, so you have real real live current weather as well as satellites. One one of our researchers uh, from the USDA is tied in with NASA. And he is really, he's actually about to retire, but he's really excited because satellites have held promise for so many years and it's always, they're going to do this, they're going, you know, and they never really did. Um, They had limitations, like they only came around every two weeks and if it was cloudy, then you didn't get a reading and then it was a month till you got your next reading and that's no way to to impact crop production. So now some of these satellites, even the free ones, you can get every other day information a place like Yuma, where we almost never have clouds, <laughs> uh, it's a pretty reliable source. And so that, and they can do thermal imaging and different kinds of imagers. And, and so that all feeds into some of these management tools. And, and uh, so I think, you know, as efficient as agriculture already is, it's going to become even more efficient in the future, That's thanks so to technology. Cool. That is so cool. You know, I'm curious, we talked a little bit about sustainability. I'm wondering, Paul, do you think there are any uh, misconceptions that people might have about sustainability and water use in agriculture, especially here in some place like Arizona? Yeah, I think there's a lot. That's a good way to put it. Uh, There's a lot of misconceptions. And again, starting with just um, if you're farming in the desert, that's probably wasting water. And that's that's really not the case. It's efficient and it's productive. I did a whole little little commentary video on looking at what are some of the supposedly easy solutions, right? Use drip, use crops, plant crops that use less water, follow the fields. They all have implications that people don't think about. For example, with drip, drip with drip, you can very efficiently provide just what the plant needs and save water. But again, over time, you're building up salts and those have to be leached out of the root zone. And so you know, the savings aren't as, depending on the cropping system, the savings aren't as great as, as advertised. And there may be other, other ways that are just as efficient and take care of uh, those issues. And you talk about planting crops that, that use less water. Well, that's terrific if you have a market for it, but, but growing a crop is not unlike, in some ways, uh, manufacturing chips at an Intel factory. You, you have investment in capital equipment, right? And in land. You use inputs, labor, water, different inputs, and you have a product that you need to sell and, and that needs to cover the cost of doing all that. So, so you have to have a market and, and make the money that you need to cover your costs. I, I could go on, but, but yeah, there's, so there's a, a lot of misconceptions, but, but I think you know, one too is, is to think about this is, what are they doing with the water? It's not really, quote unquote, the farmers using it. It's, it's producing the food that we all eat. So, so really that water is being used on us and most people I know like to eat three times a day. So it's kind of important to keep that in mind too. I'm a big snacker. <laughs> I agree. That's funny. I think uh, Paul mentioned something that I, since we're doing a STEM unplugged, I wanted to come back was when I came to Arizona, I always thought that it should rain more because we want more rain. But what you said is very important is for farming and agriculture, if I understood correctly, Paul, um, and correct me if I misstate anything, but essentially <clears throat> less rain is better better yeah. in a way because uh, you remember 
every one of us remembers doing the high school science projects. And when you can control that environment of the science project, we always like it because if there are random things that come in, then whatever we are building doesn't get built. Yeah. So taking that same example is what Paul was referring to, that when there is less rain, the amount of variables are less. And because of that, we can control the input. I think that is a brilliant point, by the way. Yeah, I really yeah. was imagining those nice, pretty rows of all the little seeds in their little <laughs> spots and then no rain, but very specific watering systems, like not disrupting where those little seeds take root. So I think that's pretty, it was, I learned that tonight too. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool detail that you shared. So that was my <laughs> misconception too. Like, it don't you want it to rain? People. <laughs> yeah, it's a surprise to people to say, why would they want it to rain? But uh, they- we want it to rain and snow lots up in the Colorado River Basin, just, right. just not right here. <laughs> not in Yuma. You just want those 120 degrees, you know. That's awesome. Yeah, we can do without those. But <laughs> <laughs> So I'm curious, um, so man, what is the important for individuals to know when they're thinking about, you're talking about water purification, right? Mm-hmm. This is your company. So what is important when selecting water purification, because I know when I came to Arizona, I didn't want to drink the faucet water. I know Mm -hmm. that's probably very persnickety, but I also noticed what happens, you know, it's probably the salt and the hard water Mm -hmm. coming through my shower. So what is important for people to know here in Arizona, selecting that purification system? Is there, you know, certain things you would suggest or, you know, encourage them to consider? Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, I'll take a step back. Now, Jeff, feel free to chime in in between as well. Sure. So we can go back and forth. A mm-hmm. um, lot of times we don't realize the water that we have also has contaminants mm-hmm. that has happened. For example, in Arizona, we have arsenic, we have uh, radioactive elements. So how does radioactive elements come in? Because uranium turns into radium, which turns into radon gas, which gets absorbed into the water in Arizona. And I think uh, University of Arizona has a beautiful paper where they did all of the study. So now when we have contaminants in water, and as we understand, we might have heard of the issue that happened in Flint, Michigan. Yes. Mm-hmm. A few years back. Yes. Right? So things like that can happen as well. Um, for example, in Arizona, we had the incident in Litchfield Park. That was a few years back. Mm-hmm. Um, if people don't know, just do a Google search, you will see. Uh, so in Litchfield Park, we had uh, contamination for what is called forever chemicals, meaning that they were breakdown. Mm. And that caused issues. Um, so the Air Force, I believe, was giving drinking water, like bottled water and all of that. So so things like that. So I think an awareness to understand the water that we have and over time, what happens to the water? How does the groundwater change? It's very important to understand all of that because a lot of times we take things for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you said, water comes out of the faucet. Can I drink it or not? Right. right. And most of the people don't drink it because it tastes terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not alone. And that is one of the reasons why people don't drink water. They move to uh, soft drinks like uh, Mountain Dew mm-hmm. or Coke or Pepsi. And that's unhealthy, empty calories that you're just putting into your body because you need to put some liquid into your body. Right. And you ask a great question uh, what should we consider? Right. Until I looked into water purification systems myself. I was unaware. Yeah. Right. So, a uh, few things that are very important. I think the great place to start is to ask what kind of purification system uh, fulfills my lifestyle, my needs, and my budget. Mm. Very important. <laughs> 
Yes, the budget. <laughs> very, very important. And over time, I have learned that quality pays over cheaper products in the long run. Always. I'll give you a small example. I had a, you know, the health trackers that we have. Yeah. I had a Motorola health tracker, which I bought about 10, 10 years ago. It still works. It's awesome. I had one of those uh, Versa, I think that's what you call it. Fitbit. Yeah, Fitbit Versa. <laughs> it lasted a year and a half. And I was thinking quality, the impact it has on the in the long run is not something people can understand right off the bat. So there has to be education education that goes into understanding long-term sustainable solutions. Right. right. They may cost a lot up front, but in the long run, it saves you a truckload of money. Right. So in terms of uh, air, uh, sorry, water purification systems, first thing you want to understand is longevity. Is this product a long-term solution for me? Because long-term solutions always save money and give us better better experience. Second thing is performance and reliability. The product that I'm going to invest in, the water I'm going to drink from it, is it reliable? One of the things that is extremely important, and CDC recommends this, is anytime you invest in a water purification system, make sure it is certified by NSF. NSF is an independent testing agency that verifies the quality claims any company makes on their products. So that is directly coming from CDC. It's a mm -hmm. simple thing. We can all check and make sure what water purification system is it certified by them. And if you want to um, understand what is available, they do have a database. So check out NSF database for water purifiers. The fourth thing is capacity. Not every household needs the same amount of water. Right. That will play into the cost. So how much wa drinking water do you need? Drinking and cooking for a family of four is different from a single professional, let's say. Right? So depending on your family's need, understanding that element is very important. Because uh, we do spend a lot of money. And man many people who buy bottled water, they spend hundreds of dollars a month mm -hmm. just on water. It is a good investment to understand if I need X amount of bottles a year, can I look into a long-term solution that will save me money? The other part is ease of use and cost of maintenance. Uh, installation cost, maintenance cost, if it is expensive to maintain it, that, that might not be a viable solution either. Uh, then there is value for money. <laughs> Do you believe you're getting value for money? That is something we focus on a lot in our um, products that we uh, provide. It has to be of value. If it does not fit the need of the person who's looking for it, then what is the value? Do they understand the value in the long run? And what are the other solutions they can uh, look into based on their need, not just because we want to sell a product. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing is, um, how many contaminants does your purification system remove? Oh, goodness. How do you find out? <laughs> <laughs> uh, manufacturers usually provide a list of contaminants. For example, the one we have removes about 300 contaminants from the uh, water stream. It has been tested by NSF and that, that sheet is available if you want, you can call the manufacturer and ask for those sheets yeah. for your own awareness, right? Because there are chemical contaminants, as mm -hmm. Oman was saying, there's particle contaminants, right? There's heavy metals. You want to make sure that the purification system you're investing in addresses all three. 
Yeah, I and, think. Oh, yeah, sorry. And one more element is germs. Ah. <laughs> Bacteria, germs in the water, because that is what causes a lot of the health issues that we experience with water. Right. So making sure there's a UV element to it that kills the germs. It's very, very, very critical. And um, the type of design based on what you prefer, what will fit your lifestyle. There's no point in getting something that I don't see myself use. Right. No matter how great it is. Right. <laughs> Hopefully that helps uh, narrow down the choices that will best suit your lifestyle and budget. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of questions that kind of goes along with, you know, even solar. Is it right for me? Should I invest in this? So, you know, my question is to all three of our guests is, how do you know if you need to purify your water? And mentioning the different items that potentially are in my West Valley water makes me consider maybe that's why I don't drink from the faucet. But, you know, when you consider all of the use in Yuma County for the plant growth and what other things should people of Arizona be aware of in, you know, our drinking water or faucet or even each city is a little bit different. I know you were talking a little bit about that, Paul, is everybody's water story around the state is a little bit different depending on where they're pulling from. For sure, different sources. You know, the municipal water that you get out of your tap is all heavily regulated and tested and monitored. Um, so I think, I, I think, <laughs> I'm not the expert, like the two sitting there, but uh, that it would always be safe. But we do run into a lot of food safety issues down here. Our, our product is fresh produce and it's not, cooked you know it's packed in the field and sent to consumers and it's not cooked when it's eaten and so if there are any pathogens in the water um and, and i was going to ask jay and soman about this is some of the things you're talking about can apply to agriculture too right the, the ag water if it was if it was more pure would would be probably more highly productive it would uh, it also you would like to be able to return water either that, you know, that you're, that is runoff, although we don't have runoff in Yuma County, but you do have, we have a high water table, so we pump water out. You'd like to be able to return that to the river mm -hmm. um, so users downstream can use it and not have to take as much water out of Lake Mead, right? Which would yeah. help with the shortage, which, which we haven't talked about at all, but the shortage is interesting too. Um, so, you know, reverse osmosis, water purification of, of large quantities of water uh, that could then allow that water to be put back in the river. But then probably most importantly is, is the food safety issue. Um, and you, you mentioned, Jay, you mentioned pathogens and certainly uh, the water here is is tested and that's, you know, watched for. And if there's a problem that that uh, produce is not harvested. So it's a big issue. And, and possibly some of the technologies that you guys use or come up with uh, could be applied to agriculture. And that's one of our opportunities slash challenges is trying to make sure that people that come up with technologies are aware of how they could be applied to agriculture because they may not think about it. But um, everything from self-driving cars to automated this or that to uh, uh, rapid diagnostics. I mean, one of the problems, again, being fresh produce, you have to harvest it when it's ready. You can't store it in a silo. Right. You got to take it to market right away. So you have shelf life. And yet, if you're doing some testing and it takes 48 hours to get lab results back, you know, your produce may already be in the, in the food supply and, and uh, it's too late to know that. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of technology, which I think is some of what you guys work on and uh, could be applied to agriculture. That's it. That, that is a very good point. I see mm -hmm. that there is application 
but because agriculture is on a much larger scale, I think there's a lot of engineering uh, work that can be done to uh, to understand what stage is the most effective in terms of saving time. Because that will be a very big uh, contributor. With produce, time is time is key, especially with greens. <laughs> greens don't. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you mentioned the water table, though. Let, let me hear what your thoughts are on, on the shortage. Yeah. <laughs> lay, lay it on us, Paul. <laughs> yeah. We now have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's another misperception. For one, is is um, here with the with the Colorado River being we're in the Colorado River, you know, basically uh, basin and. So the water level is actually fairly high in, in the ground, the groundwater table. And with the water that we divert and put on the crops, that could actually bring it up to interfere with the root systems. And so uh, water is pumped out and, and goes down to Mexico, which is not something people would think about in Arizona. But in general, yeah, so we, we do want it to rain lots in, in some places, in particular, any place that fills up Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Uh, so snow and rain up in the mountains. Yeah, this is the first year that um, there's actually been a declared shortage on the Colorado River. Um, and that's based on the level in Lake Mead, which, which feeds Arizona, Nevada, and California. Lake Powell is up above that, and that feeds the upper basin states of New Mexico and Colorado and Utah and New Mexico. And so they each have an allocation, and, and, uh, and with climate change, the river's not getting that much not getting enough precipitation to provide what is allocated. And uh, so the lake levels have been dropping. And again, just starting in January this year was the first impact of the shortage declaration. And without boring you and taking too much time, but, but a lot of water rights are based on first in use, first in right. And, um, and Yuma was the first project to divert water uh, from the Colorado River. So our rights are very... Um, high priority water rights. Um, the Central Arizona project that that um, was built, I think in the 70s and 80s, it, it came in later so that Arizona could use more of their share of water, uh, but California didn't really like the idea of Arizona using their share of water <laughs> because California was getting to use the amount that we weren't using. Um, so they weren't in favor of Congress allocating funds to help build Central Arizona project. And so in order to get sort of that buy-in, they had to agree to take junior priority water rights. And so when you you hear about the shortage and the cutbacks, uh, at this point, it's all on the the Central Arizona project, which again, serves three three counties of the 15 in Arizona. So so yeah, so they're they're scrambling to, and that's hitting agriculture in in Central Arizona, Pinal County, uh, pretty hard. So those, you know, those, those are not theoretical anymore. The, yeah. What would happen in the cutback now? It's real for some of Arizona, and uh, difficult choices have to be made. Well, and I think even just bringing that awareness, even on this, you know, small, you know, blurb on stem unplug, the idea that people are not necessarily aware of how they're being affected and what that means in their county or in, you know, their backyard, because they may not be aware of, you know, the legislation that's happening or the discussions that are being decided on. So that's, thank you for sharing. (laughs) Um, I think probably people will have more questions, so we're going to ask them to contact you. (laughs) (laughs) The one question I was going to ask, Paul, is um, 
as we are going through this shortage, um, has there been any study or anything done what the impact would be over the next two, three years or any of that? Yeah, again, in, in uh, particular with Central Arizona Agriculture, Pinal County Agriculture, I think they're looking at maybe having to follow up to 40% of their farmland. And uh, wow. um, oh. again, comparing it to an Intel factory, they've got sunk costs in the land and the equipment yeah. and everything else. And so it's a pretty tough pill to swallow. So yes. they're, uh, you know, they're looking at what infrastructure they can get in place to to utilize groundwater to supplement for that. And but yeah, it's it's starting to have real impacts and it affects people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, and the food supply. Yeah, it would it would uh, impact the food supply. That's what I was thinking. Forty percent of farmland is not producing. Then that, that's a huge shortage, and the prices will continue to go up for produce. It doesn't doesn't help. Yeah, in Central Arizona, there's not so much produce. It's, it's more uh, forage crops. Okay, um, gotcha. So half of agri- most people probably don't know this, but half of agriculture in in Arizona is livestock between dairy and beef production and the other half is crops and some of those crops are to feed the livestock so okay. <laughs> so but then it does is, impact uh, in the chain of events it does impact the livestock for example right it does it does yeah yeah oh. so there's all sorts of impacts and you know and, and arizona is a growing state and new industries coming and, and so there's a lot of demand for water absolutely and, Public policy choices need to be made. And, you know, I, I guess I hope those decisions are made as informed decisions, that they understand how is the water used in agriculture, how efficient, how productive. And also, you know, what does that offer to the state as far as green belts, right? And and uh, and a lot of counties outside of Maricopa County and Pima County really rely on natural resources like water to to fire their industries. And without that, um, they don't have much of an economic base. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's really important for, you know, especially being a non-native, understanding the impact the ag has in the state. You know, coming from a farm girl herself in upstate New York, I always would tell people, I'm not from New York City. They they confuse being from New York, being <laughs> from the city, but 90% of our state is agriculture. And uh, so I feel like Arizona has a very similar makeup that people are not really sure what's outside of Maricopa County, outside of Pima County until they travel and maybe they've seen the fields or they've, you know, passed through Yuma, but they haven't really gotten off the 10. So understanding the difference between the corners of our state is really important and why that snow is so important to Yuma County. So very great discussion so far. We have a couple of final questions. Claire, you want to ask your final question? Yeah, absolutely. So my final question has to do with ways to encourage educators to share opportunities in these fields with students in the classroom, those future employees. Um, So how can you as STEM professionals support that learning around water use and sustainability and agriculture, uh, or even the career pathways to get into those fields? Any ideas? That is a beautiful question. And you kind of tugged at my heart there because... Good. That's why we like it. (laughs) I love education. I It makes a world of difference in the quality of life around the world, right? Education plays a major role. And if children can learn about things, one way we could, we could help out with what we do is um, educate about water quality, making the choices for drinking water, for example, 
bottled water hurts the environment big time, right? And most of the drinking bottles may not be recyclable. They might not be recycled plastic, right? Making children aware of um, these little, little choices we make, I think that will go a long way in uh, building a strong future generation. So that's one way we could yeah. see ourselves uh, play a role in uh, growing the awareness. Yeah. And I think... Beautiful I'll... answer. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I was going to come from, because clearly you also mentioned about STEM side. So I think doing outreach in the house, high schools, I know it happens, but I think uh, if we can do outreach, especially in the junior and the senior year of high school, where people can understand what does STEM mean, what does it entail, and... Uh, because a lot of times media and all have created a an understanding of STEM, which may or may not be right. Yeah. So uh, I think having that awareness and just making it fun yeah, for people. I because love that. Yeah. I love what you said, because until I sat down and asked myself, water, STEM, water is so basic. Everybody knows water, uses water every day. But how many of us know different ways it is used? Mm -hmm. Not just for drinking, but for cleaning, cooking, daily use, agriculture, big, big area, right? Our beverages, industrial use, cooling systems, everything uses water. And helping children learn through that, because we are talking about water. I'm just speaking in that context. Water is used in power plants. In uh, uh, newer technologies, they are used in uh, for water sports, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> um, keeping it fun and just... Helping children understand how does science of water use, engineering systems, for example, the beautiful agricultural predictable production system that we just heard and learned from Paul, right? That's engineering. Yep. And water, it's just with one element, you can go a long way. Our mathematical models that predict, for example, someone you were asking about the impact of water shortage in the long run. Mm -hmm. There can be mathematical models that can predict predict the future uh, state of deficiency. What what can it lead to? Mm -hmm. and maybe we can do proactive, we could take proactive steps towards that. So just understanding how technology, technology is not just apps. Right. <laughs> I know many people think <laughs> technology means apps. Technology is much bigger than that. Yeah, I so I think just, having professionals from these different fields, just uh, bringing them together in a high school environment and just maybe share about what they do. And uh, talking about possibilities yeah. and just taking an offshoot. Um, like we talked about water, but then we also talked about recycled because we're drinking water of bottled plastics, water as an example. What plastics are recyclable, what are not, how does that impact? Yeah. And then 3D printing comes into all of that. So there's what I'm trying to say, I guess, is just having that awareness and creating that awareness and um, mm -hmm. in the junior, senior, especially, I think. That yeah, is it reminds me kind of how it's made. I remember watching that show yeah. growing up and understanding, wow, they're using a lot of water <laughs> to make that item. Um, but again, that goes back to the manufacturing I mentioned earlier, yes. how much is used in the plants. What about you, Paul? Any final thoughts? Yeah, on, on, on the education part, a few things came to mind. The, the U of A, by the way, University of Arizona, is the number one water research school in the mm -hmm. maybe the world, at least the country. We're what's called a land-grant university, and uh, for those not familiar with that, each state has a land-grant university, and um, all universities do teaching and research, but land-grants have a third 
component, which is outreach or extension, where they their their charge, and it came from back in Lincoln's day, President Lincoln's day, is to not just be an ivory tower, but get that get that knowledge and information and science out to the public and to industries, and you know get it out there and used. And so, so there's something called cooperative extension that the University of Arizona has, and they're present in all 15 counties of Arizona, and they have a program called WaterWise, which they um, they take out to the schools and to to events, and he sounds like you've seen it before. <laughs> yeah, and even Daryl, he's sitting over here off screen, but uh, he saw Waterwise at one of our Arizona SciTech Festival events and Project Wet, so he was nodding his head like I know that. <laughs> Absolutely. So that that exposes t- kids to realize what's going on underground and and how's water used and and different things, and then the Arizona Farm Bureau is a, a agricultural industry organization. Uh, that I'm active in, and and they have a whole program of ag in the classroom, and, and they go with different programs in the schools and help. It actually helps meets uh, school standards, you know, state standards for schools, so the teacher can kind of relax and know that, okay, I've got some guests in the classroom, fill in some time, but it's actually also uh, teaching the kids some things they need to know, and and so that talks about how water is used, um, and then. Uh, uh, and we we provide internships. This is more at the college level, but uh, for students to work with us and understand how's water used in agriculture. So those are some ideas that, that came to mind. Well, I'm going to take you all back to eighth grade because I know you mentioned high school, but uh, I was actually a sixth grade math teacher. And I learned in my years in the classroom that a lot of students decided whether they could or they couldn't by sixth grade. And it broke my heart, especially in math. But I'm curious about what you would say to your eighth grade self, or if you were chatting to eighth graders in general, what advice would you give to encourage them to consider a career in STEM or a pathway to even your organization? Or you mentioned you didn't really know that you were going to love chemical engineering, but you found it and you loved it. So what kind of advice would you give to your eight-year-old self and or any other eighth graders. Let's start with you. Yeah, I'm smiling because you reminded me of eighth grade. My first experiment, physical experiment, was splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. Oh, okay. And seeing that, I was like, wow, that is possible? <laughs> it just opened up my mind to, oh, science is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. I get to learn so much, right? Um, if I met my eight-year-old self, I would say, Learn to have fun while you learn. Apply. The more you apply, STEM STEM fields are, yes, there is theoretical uh, learning involved. However, I think you will learn a lot more effectively when you apply it. Just do things, try things out. I will tell you, you will never know, never know what direction your life will take. I could never in my dreams imagine sitting here and talking to you, Kelly, because I am an introvert and I thought I am good behind my uh, research facility. I'm just doing my work, producing good, uh, good products and whatnot. I'm good. I don't want to talk to people. Right. But learning that I can make good products. And if I don't communicate, if I'm not able to go out there and apply it and bring that to, to the public where they can benefit from it, it doesn't help. Right. Right. So um, try it. Ask questions. I think that is one advice I would give myself. Don't be shy to ask questions. There's nothing called a stupid question. If you're asking a redundant question, you're just checking again and making sure you're getting the information right. So don't be afraid to ask questions. That's great advice. 
Should I go next? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you, Jeff. That was pretty good. Um, I was thinking of two things would, would be, number one would be be open to possibilities. Oh, and I keep love that one. Yeah. <laughs> and the second one to my eighth grade, uh, I would say that if you see a problem, if you see something that is not happening, uh, uh, think of solutions that you can, in your, especially in our community, as we are growing up, we all see some things that are not working out some solution that we can make, which can make life better. Mm -hmm. So keeping that mind open towards that, I think uh, those would be two. Because whenever we find a solution, we want to apply it. And that actually, and a lot of the applications, just like Jay was saying, is from... Yeah, the more we talk to people, the more we share our ideas, we never know what comes out of it. That's great. So not holding it back. (laughs) What about you, Paul? I thought of two things. One is when I first became an engineer, you know, I got out of college, I went to work at a phone company doing telecommunications research. And I just, for me, college was just kind of given. That's what I was going to do. I was going to go to college and I didn't think too much about it. Uh, There was an immigrant from, uh, I think, Vietnam, and he was an engineer colleague of mine. And he told me one day how going to school and getting his engineering degree, he, I mean, he literally came over on a boat and wasn't necessarily set up to have a good life. But he said going to school and becoming an engineer was an automatic ticket into middle-class American life. And uh, wow. that really struck me. I thought, how cool is that? You just go to school, you put in the work, and you got a ticket to a good job. And uh, so that was that was one I thought of. And uh, the other is just that STEM, you know, STEM education, STEM degrees, are such, they're so useful no matter what you do. Just just like Jay said, uh, who would have thought a farm kid would do the things I'm doing? But, and then I left, you know, I left the phone company after five years and and went to farming. And, and you think, well, you're wasting your engineering degree, but it, it, it couldn't be further from the truth just because the way that I think and the way that I solve problems and the way I can dig into things, um, it has served me well, whether it's on the farm or in business or now you know, um, helping to organize research projects. It's just, it's really a good basis for almost anything. It sounds like you like it too. I think that makes a difference. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I do. I will say one kid in college, I remember him complaining how hard it was and he he hated it, but he knew it paid well. And so he was doing it. I thought, dude, this is not worth the pain of of how hard these classes are if you're not going to enjoy it. That's very true. true. Well, to our listeners, we encourage you to get involved in the STEM community. Maybe you're an industry professional seeking ways to make an impact on the lives of others, but you need an opportunity to share. Or maybe you're a student searching for a mentor and not sure where to look or who is available. Maybe you're a community collaborator hoping to meet the right people to help make a SciTech Festival event happen. We want to help you get connected to encourage events, tours, showcases, STEM career panels, and more. The 11th season of the Arizona SciTech Festival is happening now, and you have just witnessed a part of it. Thank you for being on our show. We want to go around one last time and share one way our listeners can find out more about you or your organization or ways to get in contact with you. Okay. Um, the best way to contact us would be through our email. It is achieverslegacy at gmail.com or uh, text. Uh, I'm a big text person. It, it helps me stay connected better. So you can reach out to us. Uh, is it okay if I Yeah, absolutely. At 480-242-8506. Um, 
reach out to us if there's any way we can help you, serve you, education, product, service. We are happy to do that. Thank you so much. Paul, what about you? And, you know, before I say that, I, I want to let you know that I knew Jeremy Babin, yeah, Babin Babin <laughs> when he was starting this. Um, so it's neat to see how it's grown. Oh, that's so that's cool. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's done a great job. And it's neat. Um, probably for me, the best thing would be our website, which is hopefully easy to remember. We, we made it kind of generic because the U of A one was uh, pretty painful to uh, <laughs> write out. Um, so so our website is desertagsolutions.org. Nice. And, uh, I mean, you can, you can, you can Google Yuma Center of Excellence for Desert Agriculture, but then you have to remember all that. So oh, desertxsolutions.org yeah. <laughs> has everything about us and our projects and um, uh, different topics and and all sorts of stuff. So. Well, we want to thank you all for joining us for this episode of STEM Unplugged, exploring water in Arizona and beyond. We appreciate all of our guests for being on the show. And if you'd like more information on ways to volunteer or support in organizing an event, let us know. You can check out our website, SciTechInstitute.org, and complete the Get Involved form. A quick shout out to all educators, students, families, and community members celebrating the Arizona SciTech Festival. This month, we focus on water in honor of the National Water Day coming up on March 22nd. We appreciate your enthusiasm for STEM in Arizona. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Kelly Green, and we would be glad to discuss how you can get connected. Thank you for joining us for this episode of STEM Unplugged. We encourage you to get involved in the STEM community and stay connected at SciTechInstitute.org.